You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. Welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth, and my name is John Teague. So a couple of days ago, um, I had a conversation with Simon Buttonshaw, and let me tell you, it's um, – I, I just it, – it <laughs> every now and again you meet someone who is operating um, on a different level. Uh, I mean – and he would hate for me to say that because he's such a, a humble uh, human. Um, but, you know, such a deep, rich, complex um, person who asks a lot of himself and 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 really is living a um, an, an honest, creative journey. And it's not for seemingly, I, I'm, you know, Simon is is very esteemed in the art world, and and and, and I know as from surfer uh, as a surfer, and and uh, we we love his artwork, but I don't th- I think whether he, he's doing that or not, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's the byproduct of he, him being honest to himself, um, and and when you you talk to someone who is is so honest with themselves on their own creative journey with the struggle of that. You know, um, you can't help but have a little reflective moment of like, well, and looking in within to yourself. And I've found that's happened to me over the past couple of days. Um, you know, asking, it's not that I've been fucking nut sitting in a dark room going, what am I? You know, it's just, it's more, um, you know, what, what, what is the truth? What is my relationship with myself and nature and those around me? And, um, and you know because it's easy to get lost in today's world and technology um and so having a chat with Simon really um it was great because I found it's left me feeling very um almost grounded and and just happy to be and um and and, and experience um to truly know the world look deep within your own being to truly know yourself, take a real interest in the world. That's a quote from Rudolf Steiner and um, I'll leave you with that. I hope you enjoy my you chat with Simon. Is, is okay, wow. see you on the other side. You hear two hours of crap. A complete and total barfarama. I was born in Middle Brighton in Melbourne. Yeah. And lived on the beach road. Yeah. Nearly opposite the bars. Yeah. Looking directly across <laughs> at, at the coast. Yeah. <laughs> at the Yu Yangs. So there was some destiny aspect to that yeah. because right yeah. from being a baby, my gaze was across there yeah. just by circumstance alone. And, um, but by equal circumstance, Claw lived, I think it was four doors up from me on the beach road and John Law lived ten. Okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so a baby's gazing across the, the, the water at Torquay 
growing up with two people are going to play a very significant part in um, the future. And that was all just circumstance. And uh, Terry Wall lived very close by, just a couple of streets back. Rod Brooks lived up the other part of Brighton, you know, up the back end of Brighton there. Again, you know, 10 minutes away. So, boom, John Robinson, you know, he lived in Hampton, Fledge, who I grew up with and surfed with, uh, and who, who was, you know, by far the best surfer out of us at the time. He, he lived close by as well. We all went to Halebury. So all of these things were natural, um, naturally occurring. They weren't something we sought out. But we all ended up going surfing. Claw used to take me first because um, I was far too young to drive a car, so I was thrown in the back of a panel van and um, we'd go down and or later on I went to the Vic College of the Arts, which was the National Gallery Arts School back then, and... I, I did it very young. I got in very young for all sorts of reasons. And so I used to go down a lot with Terry Wall because he was at, at the Melbourne Uni. And so he'd pick me up when our academic days had finished and we'd go down to Torquay. We'd always go down Friday afternoon and... Um, Started to come home Monday morning, and you know, yeah, yeah, so it, it kind of yeah. the amount of time gradually increased until the Melbourne part disappeared, and um, at least for me and for Claw and for for Singing and um, Wayne came out of Lawn, and Wayne grew up in Lawn, born and bred down that way. Um, his extended family, his uncles, and that were all fishermen. His dad was a builder. And um, there was only a handful of kids our age that surfed back then. I mean, like on your digits number. And <clears throat> so Wayne and I became lifelong friends. We, we began our friendships. I think Wayne was 11. <laughs> 11 or, or just 12, I can't remember. I was, I was 13 and I'm a, I'm a bit older. And... Um, so those friendships were really important because... Well, they were kind of destined. Yeah, exactly. They're, and you don't want to kind of go on too much with words like that, but you can't deny that um, for want of a less pompous word, there was an element of destiny in it, you know, and, and that's for absolute sure. And... And they were very natural relationships because um, John Pawson was another young surfer and the Duckworths that I mentioned to you from Point Lonsdale and Bill Kelly from Ocean Grove and that was pretty much it, you know. Like it was a very small group of half a dozen kids and everyone else was young adults or, or more. And it was... Um, A fantastic culture because you had mentors and you had elders. Tribal. Yeah. 
and it all just nothing was done self-consciously it just all just happened to be that way and you know grommets didn't get the best end of the stick back then and things weren't politically correct in those days so <laughs> all sorts of transgressions um from from today's viewpoint for sure but something very strong and um healthy was there too and the ocean gave you a rite of passage and you needed older men to help you negotiate no leg ropes no nothing so you're a kid out at bells and it's big and you don't have a leg rope you really will be dealing with it no matter what yeah. How well you do. Yeah. <laughs> At some point you're going to be dealing with it. The button. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The cold. Yeah, and the and just the the strength you need to to and then later on down the coast and what that required and 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 um so what I'm kind of getting at is it was a very um special set of circumstances and you can say all sorts of things about the past and everyone looks on the past with with more favor as distance gets greater but there were special circumstances that i haven't seen repeated since that made a certain type of freedom available we um We'd grown up with parents who'd gone through the war. We were born at a time when the world had stabilised for the first time in decades and <clears throat> there was an optimism and an abundance that isn't true now. Nowadays things are very short-lasting and ephemeral and there's a it's very hard for young people to have that level of freedom because the demands of their daily existence even if they're doing well just the the work they've got to do just to, to stay abreast of their social media presence or whatever it is takes up a shitload of time and we didn't have to think about any and mental space. Yeah, and 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 more than the time you put in mental space, double it. And and so it was a unique time, and and we could live on the edge and the fringe of society and eat well, and surf and pay for petrol, and pay a nominal rent for something, quite manageably. And we didn't need to work a lot to meet all that. And once we'd created those, um, you know, those companies and things, uh, you know, a lot of that became a lot easier but a lot of that also changed and um, other, other forces came to bear. But just to give you a... A very beginning, um, the Brighton Beach thing I told you, even the room I was born in overlooked the ocean. It was at the back of the hospital facing the bay, not the front that faced New Street. And um, 
Brighton always had a very special Brighton and Essendon because Essendon was at the end of the old Geelong Road, right? Yeah. And Brighton, these two places really fed the surf coast. Yeah, the the the, the Torquay Surf Club was largely populated by members, and I, I've got to get this right. You might have to correct this by looking it up, but I think it was the. Railway Institute of Boxing and Wrestling in Spencer Street. Right, but a lot of the boys that made up the surf club, they were quite serious young men. And that played a big part in the culture of Torquay, both in the surfing side and the club side. And, you know, Joe Sweeney was an Olympic wrestler, you know, and like 600 golden gloves boxes and every other level of red. And, you know, you talk to Dickie Garrard and all that, you find out these guys are all like that. They were hard men. Yeah. And so it was an extraordinary town to grow up in because um, I got there just turning 13 and I looked around and I thought, I mean, it was like the Wild West. And you couldn't believe as a kid after coming out of Brighton, which is anything but the Wild West, <laughs> that that was even possible. Yeah. So it was incredibly attractive um, because there was enormous freedom there and, and so you could also do what you wanted to do, which wasn't necessarily what they were up to, but they, they, they were happy to let the grommets be grommets. And so Wayne, as particularly Wayne and I back then and Fledge and that and... Charlie Bartlett later, um, you know, we, we had the run of the whole coast and um, it was genuinely free. There was no parks, no bodies governing anything and complete meathead, bogan, redneck fishermen and that never did as much damage as what the parks and that have managed to do. <laughs> yeah. So that couldn't be true now just because of the sheer numbers of people and I, I understand their need to regulate things and that. But um, Did you ever see any of the cars on fire go over Bird Rock? Yeah, and it point at us <laughs> awesome. as well. <laughs> How good. <laughs> I did with my own eyes. I actually did. Yeah. Now a lot of things went. I mean, it's a wild town, and and can I, can I say? Can I just jump in here really quickly and say that it sounded like you have a bit of wildness in you as well, which would have resonated with a wild town. And I only say that because Sham told me a little story one time of maybe how you might have burnt your uh, cadet uniform in front of the bus as a statement. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I love, I, I I love that, that story. Halebury College, um, we had a choice. I was a very introverted kid, you know, I was a painter, you know what I mean? Like uh, my whole psyche moves towards solitude in a room where I can get on with it and not be bothered. Uh, it's my natural style of attention. So you get into school and that's anything but that. You're constantly under pressure to 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 move outward and engage with all sorts of things that you didn't choose in the first place. So one of those cho choices that you didn't choose in the first place was cadets. And <laughs> cadets came by default 
you actually weren't aware of the choice at the time that you got put into it. You found out about the choice in retrospect because <laughs> it was a very um, old-fashioned schooling system back in those days and the vice-principal was an ex-colonel. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, just in the whole shooting, you'd imagine the British thing, you know, the whole freaking thing. And, you know, my dad had been a very uh, active man in the, in the um, and that's a whole other subject and it's an extraordinary story, but he was, uh, you know, he'd faced a lot of battle in his life. He was, he was a very hardened man and, and um, he didn't mind cadets because, I was a weak kid. He, he thought it would toughen me up, and um, but I was also precocious and arrogant, fucking kid. And um, I was reading a lot of Gandhi and stuff at the time, and I decided that I was anti-war. You see, <laughs> and um, but they kept making us go on these camps to Puckapunyal, and they were really sadomasochistic, fucking. Like you went to Pakapanyol, yeah. In when was uh, back in the early 60s, 63, 64. Jesus, there would have been no pampering. No, no, it was seriously <laughs> that what you know, all of that. Um, I mean, you, you would, you know, you could write a thousand books on what was wrong with it. Um, oh my god, and I was particularly adverse to it, and um. So anyway, we the next year came along, and I had my kit. But yeah, you, you had to line up out in front of Halebury. It was in South Road. They hadn't got Keysborough at that stage. So you line up opposite um, Fairbank. You know, so you had so a lot of the girls that ended up in Torquay came from Fairbank. So that's another subject. There you go. And most of us had met trans bus stop long before Torquay happened. So there was a nice aspect to that. Um, again, just coincidence on one level, but you'd lined up and the buses lined up and you had your kit bag and you had your 303 rifle. In cadets. In cadets. Right, we were 14-year-old kids. With a 303. With 303 rifles. 303 rifles and they weren't bored to hold something less consequential <laughs> full on. And anyway, there's a lot of stories, but the one Sham told you, by this stage I was very um, sure I was going down to Torquay. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be a painter. I always knew I wanted to be a painter. Um, I knew I wanted to go to the National Gallery. So can I interject one second? This is in the 60s. Yeah. Vietnam War's happening. Yeah. It's in your mind. Absolutely. Being this is possible grooming to go to war. Yep. Yeah, fuck that. Possible? They wanted you to go to war. They were absolutely preparing. You know, they, uh, I mean, they were an establishment college with all of the old-fashioned alignments with the government and everything else in terms of policy and the construct. None of the kind of independent... Um, Thinking, but it was the birth of all of that. It was the end of the old at that point. And cadets, yeah, at this stage, you're absolutely right. 
And that's why Puckapunyal and that was so full on. They weren't no. on one level. They weren't fucking around. Well, it's not almost <laughs> more than cadets. They're yeah, like brooming right. of war. Yeah, no, it was all of that. Um, well, they are quite perceptive because this is the psyche that you were dealing with as a young boy. And because my dad was so smart and he had been through the Spanish Civil War, he was a French Foreign Legionnaire, he'd fought in D-Day, um, tail gunner in a Lancaster, he was a merchant marine, he'd done so much stuff. And he taught me really well as a young boy, like, he sat down and read Animal Farm with me. George Orwell. Yeah, he knew Orwell. Really? This is Fair Dinkum. He saved Orwell's life once. You've got to give it to me. This is yeah, this is Fair Dinkum. They were in Spain together. He knew Hemingway and he knew Orwell. And he didn't like Hemingway, but he really liked Orwell. Was Hemingway the one that ended up in Cuba? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, one time they were... Uh, I'm not sure where it was, but it was towards the end and they were behind a bunker and firing and Orwell stuck his head up because he thought something anyway. My dad grabbed him by the back of the head by the hair and pulled him back and the bullet went through the flesh of his neck as he... Pulled him just just here though, yeah. not not through anything significant. Yeah, just saved to... his life completely. And Orwell wrote about it in the di- in his diary. But um, I think he thought Harve was Austra- American and not Australian because there was quite a lot of Australians in the poom, but not so many American. Um, no, quite a lot of Americans, but not so many Australians. Um, and he he. Um, that was the only mistake in the diary. But, yeah. I, I had no idea that George Orwell went to war, one. Yeah, he did. World-famous author. Yep. In the trenches. Yep. No, he fully got in among – that's what Harve said. He said that Orwell got into it up to here and Hemingway stood back and he didn't like Hemingway because Hemingway was big and um, – and he was a big man, like he was big in every respect. Right, yeah. <laughs> he was fucking Ernest Hemingway, you know. Um, but Harve said he used that to hide behind was what he told me when I was a kid. And um, But he said Orwell really got in there and saw it for himself. He participated. He, he wrote about it up at the front of everything and... Wow. And, it, and his writing is still so relevant. Yeah. Like... Yeah, so many of the questions he raised have cyclically returned. Uh, and we were going into it, but we're already in it up to here. Oh, uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. But we're going, forward. <laughs> yeah. we're going forward. And I often think, you know, if my dad was still alive, just how... Um, harrowing that would have been for him because he fought for something that was eventually not in Spain but worldwide to some degree achieved for a brief time and now 
the principles in in different people are, are playing out again. Yeah. I'm going to give you a, uh, yeah, someone flicked me a pretty funny podcast the other day on uh, some Trump stuff and just a lot of clippets that he's saying and it's frightening. Oh, he's terrifying. Terrifying. Like, yeah, anyway, we won't go on about that. But um, it, uh, it, uh, he's, he's completely of the mould. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, He wants to take away the rights of people and get mm. rid of the judges and just, you yep. know, like I'm not giving my – tax return back because no one will understand it you're all too like yep anyway now um, he, he he runs it like a ceo yeah with no moral accountability in the corporate world my experience is that the truth is there's not much transparency there and most things are done to maximize the objective, you know, which is usually just straight up profit, but the way it's explained to the world and what really happened in the room prior to that are vastly different things. And Trump's just doing what gets done in every boardroom <laughs> out, of, out in the open. He's a typical CEO, in my humble opinion. Well, yeah. And uh, and a reality TV star who's now yeah that part inconceivable isn't it? <laughs> um, anyway, you're sorry we got off track, but you're saying that your dad had instilled some pretty good. Um, he said he was really smart and he had instilled some good values in you as a, yeah, and, and just just the ability to see different things at work. So even at school, I knew what was going on even though I was a young boy and I didn't want to be part of it and and at a certain point I I couldn't actually couldn't so on that day all I did was um I also took along some um petrol (laughs) and when we were meant to get on the bus I poured the petrol all over the kit bag and I had the kit bag open at the top and I had all my army stuff in. I made sure I packed what I didn't, all the shit I didn't want. So I had all the cadet uniform and everything that mattered, you know, in there but none of my shit. And I poured the petrol all over it. It was a fair fair amount, um, I don't know, a couple litre or more. And then um, I got a box of matches and lit a match and set fire to my kit bag and it went up all at once. Yeah, so it was pretty it was spectacular. Yep. And um, and while that happened, and it was leaning against the lamppost, so it was looking pretty serious. And while that happened, I stood there and I got my 303 and I just smashed it against the lamppost as hard as I could till I smashed the whole butt off and everything and just mangled it. I couldn't bend the metal, but I, I smashed it up and I threw it on top of the kit bag. And um, I turned around and Mr Northcote, who was the vice principal, the colonel. He was, he was the colonel. He was military. Yeah, he was yeah. the man. And, and, I, and I just looked at him and I said, I'm never coming back. You can get fucked <laughs> like that. And you know who saw this? What a moment. Yeah. You know Derham Tutton? Have you met Tutty? Oh, I know Tutty. Yeah, I know young Tutty. Well, his dad yeah. saw it. He was in one of the buses. So it's probably worth just Following having up. that yeah, conversation because yeah. you'll get it from a totally other place, but he bore witness to it. 
and um what a stand though it's yeah. awesome well it was and and um it was the beginning of all of what you're talking about and um that was why I went to the the National Gallery Art School so young. Oh, I, yeah, I see. Yeah, because my parents shit themselves because yeah. I'd fucked. You know, I'd pretty much shut the the book on Halebury, and um, I'd gone down to Torquay, and I was living in Rod Brooks's house, going surfing with Wayne every day, and um, Wayne's mum used to drive us around, <laughs> uh, and I'd stay down at his place, and we'd surf the point and all that, and. So we were, we were we were okay. We were good, and um, but the the Vietnam thing was intensifying, and conscription was soon part of the landscape. Wayne got conscripted. I missed it by a day, um, but that was a really. Uh, if you say you missed it by a day, is that because they're drawing numbers in the lottery? Out of it yeah, and yeah, it went yeah. the day. That's right. Yeah. Went the day before me. Oh, and. Um, Wayne got hit on the knocker, so he 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 disappeared into the hills, into the Otways, and 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 up north as well. And um, but it was a reality for all of us, and our friends were going, and you know it was a, a completely different. You couldn't conceive in this contemporary world with with how we perceive human rights now and all of those issues about your civil rights and everything else. You couldn't conceive a world where, where that was... Well, you're getting sentenced to death, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and they're sending their young and their finest and all of that. Um, and, you know, I was an, I was an, I got into the Vic College of the Arts and... Um, so did you, your creative streak, did that, um, that was always a strong point for you, like you're in a creative life, you were aware of it from a young age? From the beginning. Yeah. Um, it's hard to talk about those things... It was like de the word destiny before. It's a difficult subject because in retrospect there was such a predestined kind of aspect to it. My father was a very good, th these are things that are worth documenting, gash, you know, gash? The, yeah. Yeah, okay. So all, all of gash, um, I'll work back, okay? I'll, yeah, I'm yeah. hopping around. We'll reverse engineer this one. Yeah, <laughs> okay. You gotta, yeah. Sometimes history is best told backwards. Right. Um, that's true, actually. Um, Gash, you know, I did that when I was working at Quick. Um, it was at a time when Quick had gone from being an extremely revolutionary and creative company where we literally made it up day to day as we went to becoming quite collegiate and corporate and the graphic language of the company was was self-consciously so <clears throat> and of course that w went against my grain so I started Gash as a voice um, originally it was raw 
No, I um, there was. I was just going to jump in quickly. There was. A, I was going to ask a question around this because there's yeah. an interesting story in here. I know, and uh, one of the first campaign ads. I remember. I was in love with Cash when I was at school, and I. I, I yeah, anyway, I won't go into too much. But um, wrote to Brownie because I wanted to become a shaper at yeah. school. You know, blah blah blah. Yeah. And I think we spoke about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, yeah. Um, Gash ripped out of the guts of raw. raw. There you go. Okay, so raw. I. I, I I work with Greg, I work with a very young Mark Phipps and Wayne and um, Tony Ray was deep in the mix and, and all of us that made up the community of surfers at the time, Kaysen and everybody, you know, we were all at various degrees involved. But I came up with the name and the artwork and all that stuff and really what I wanted to do, I was fed up I was very annoyed. There's different stages in the journey of the surf industry. I've, I've really struggled with the level of dumbing down and selling out that's taken place unnecessarily in, I think, in quite distinct contrast to what our real customers wanted. And I think we were chasing... Um, you know, off... off uh, I, you know, you you should know who your audience are and always take care of them because they've given you the ability to be there in the first place. And I think sometimes when things get get big and the boardroom starts to take up a lot of the time, you know, you, you're not you're not actually listening to people the way you might have once, and things get off the track. So I thought Raw was an, a great chance. They were all my friends. They were shapers. I thought, fuck it, I'll do something here where I put just as much thought and effort into this as what would go into one of these clothing companies, which is what they actually are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? They're rag, it's a rag trade. And it's not a cottage industry. It's a rag. It's the rag trade. And so we started raw like that and... At this stage, I, I was struggling with a lot of the things that were happening and um, I actually left Quicksilver and started doing some work with Beach Crew and um, because they were young and small and I thought there was a great opportunity to, to kind of um, put a, a lively counter voice with a little bit of satire and a little bit of humour and touch of the edge to it and um that was all good it went quite well for a while but they, you know it wasn't all straightforward and they, they actually registered the, the the name and the logo and everything behind our backs and then greg came and told me in the morning brown yeah greg brown he's very astute you know like People see Greg as a great shaper and that, and he is, but he's actually extremely astute and he's, he's got his eye on things really, um, you know, very, very, very uh, perceptive man. So he saw it, saw it coming. I knew he, he kind of would have had a sense of it and he picked it up before anyone. So he told me in the morning, so that afternoon I came to the raw shop, which was where... Um, I don't know who the fuck's in there now, but it was Strapper for a while. Um, that shop in front of where Peter Ashley used to be near the medical clinic on that corner. Is it? Um, Opposite. 
Opposite Soul the Foods and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's on that corner. Yeah. There. There's like, I think there's a medic, medical thing there. It may well be. Yeah. But there was a shop. That corner shop was fairly significant kind of building in the early part of Torquay's um, journey towards um, urban horror. And um, we had great big raw logos up all over the shop. And it was kind of a beach cruise shop, but raw was pretty much the draw cart. Yeah. So I came along and the raw logo was pretty good. It had teeth all around a big shark. I remember it. it. Yeah, Yeah. you know, it was a strong logo, you know. And I had fun doing it. It was like a, it was um, because we were surfing down here a lot and everything. There was a totemic element for me, you know. Yeah. Because we were living with these creatures and I thought, fuck, we'll do the right thing, you know, give them a bit of acknowledgement. Um, and I wanted the raw word. It could have been R A W, but I I made it the the the, the sound raw because it was a voice back at a, a very compromised industry at this point. Mm-hmm. And um, when it was registered, we lost ownership of it. So I came along up. I had the word gash in my head. I'd carried that for quite a long time and I got it. Um, Greg had a particularly vertical off the top for that period in surfing and it always left a big gouge in the wave the way he did it and that's where I got the word. I I, I just used to watch that at Winky and stuff surfing together and – yeah, it was just an observation. I just thought one day, gash, that's a fucking big gash. And, I, of course, you know, I know all the yeah, yeah. triple entendres yeah, yes, and yeah, of course, yeah. God knows what that went along with it back then, so I'm not unaware of that. And I always thought, you know, that's a good name. One day, one day I'll use that. And then when this happened, I said to Greg, hey, look, how, how do you like the sound of the word gash? <laughs> and he was... He was all good. Greg was always um, – Greg and Morris were always fun to work with because it, very different men altogether but neither of them had much fear. You could do anything. And they, particularly <laughs> Greg, um, most enjoyed being surprised. So I really could just do things and then go, check this out. Yeah. Instead of what do you think, what do you think, what do you think, you yeah, know. Yeah, it was yeah. very easy to work with him. So – um, it, it was a natural proper use of the word collaboration. It lasted for decades, um, a real collaboration. And we crossed out big red crosses through all the raw logos and then I wrote on each one of them, Raw is dead, gash is born. Right? No mm. one knew what that meant. And then I pulled Greg's logo because in Raw each shaper had a, a different icon mm-hmm. and Greg's was the heart and dagger because I figured he was a rock star, right, you know, so I gave him the heart and dagger. And um, That was the original one with the dagger so in on the yep. top of the heart like there. Yep. I had that poster. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was Greg's shaping logo originally and, and I made – the ad you're referring to, that writing was how I wrote it on the the signs. Arms, arms, yeah. That's where that font came from. Yeah. I was just <laughs> arms, lengths, curves and things. 
um, all very, you know, um, post-expressionist fucking whammo. Well, also look like cuts. Yeah, gash. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that was why we did that ad, ripped rip from the guts of raw. And we had the heart, the beating heart that had been stabbed, but it was still beating. And this was the new, you know. Can... Um can we go? What happened to the? I, I I've heard whispers. Yeah. To the to the people that were gonna fuck you over there. Yeah. They went as a barley. Yeah. Can we talk about that or not? I'd rather leave it off. Let's leave it off. Yeah. yeah. Cool. There, you know, there's some good folk in amongst it who are still with us. Yeah. Um, and I, I I've stayed friends with a couple of the people there. Um, but they're not all still with us, mm. you know. Time and tide have taken, and and you know, they were radical times, and people crossed radical um, thresholds. Yes, thresholds. They're a good word. <laughs> thresholds, exactly. And that didn't always go well for them. Um, but it was, um, it, it, you know, it was a very interesting time. Gash. Um, Trax did a <laughs> Trax did some survey asking all their readers to to list their favorite uh, surf brands. Gash came in at number three. We hadn't made anything ever but surfboards. We weren't a brand. There was no t-shirts. There was nothing. Um, but just because of our ads. Mm. Well, it really, as you said before. You know how you said lost track to who your consumer is, yeah. and I think it really sung, yeah, to the 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 yeah yeah, and it, it, so th- these are interesting areas to look at because. Sorry, out of interest, what was one and two? What was what? One and two. One and two. Gash came in at three. Gash came in at three. It was. I remember Rip Curl was one and I'm pretty sure it, it was quick. Yeah. Um, Billabong, um, we, we, beat, we beat Hot Tuna and Billabong and a whole lot of other companies. It was insane. And it was all to do with the marketing because um, that part was – and this is the thing I'd like to go back to and tidy it up. When I was little and we lived in Middle Brighton, my dad, after all of his exploring of the political landscape and his um, engagement with, um, you know, everything that he did trying to better the world, he ended up an anarchist politically. That was where... and. That was the way he – individual dignity, individual empowerment, that was pretty much where he ended up. But that didn't sit so well with 1950s Australia. <laughs> so we used to have knocks on the door with different people in suits and things coming to talk to my dad and we didn't lead an overly normal life in that respect and he never – held down jobs and things because certain aspects of what he was involved with would eventually assert themselves and involved with and probably exposed to through yeah 
all those battles and yeah, that's right. But what he used to do was hand silkscreen posters, anarchist posters in the kitchen at night. (laughs) And they were really vivid modernist images with fists and things and this is where all of my gash thinking came from. As a little boy watching him produce these posters, it wasn't just for the anarchist. He used to print for art groups and things as well but... He was a good printer. He's you know? very creative as well. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he painted and all that and made wooden boats, this couple over there, and things like that. So um, it was a very creative environment to grow up in. And my auntie, June Stevenson, um, was part of the avant-garde world back then. Um, she was engaged to John Brack. Um, I studied under Arthur Boyd as a painter when I was a kid. Um, that world was all in Bomoris and Brighton. That was where everyone lived. Yeah. Um, and we were part of that milieu. So growing up it was lovely. And, um, and so the National Gallery and all of that, they were very natural choices. My father was incredible. You know, the only time I really fell out with my father was when I started working for Quicksilver. Because of the corporate yeah, angle? Yeah. yeah. He got really angry at me. And, um, you know, I said, um, you know, I said, we're creating all this and it's this and it's this. And he said, he picked it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, this one and this and this one, he's, he will go this way and this way and you watch your back. And um, he was right, you know. It happened after he, he died but he was right. And... Um, so all of that, all of that gash work and that was grounded. I think your art has to come. Constable once said something really that stuck with me. He, he said, um, "Paint what you know best," and that was why he painted that landscape because it was what he knew best. Mm-hmm. But as a guiding thing, and paint can be anything. You know, I just happen to like painting, mm-hmm. but it can be anything you like. But but. It's the same as like a lot of the mediums though. Yeah. You know, you stick in where your interest and what you... Yeah. And, and, and so when I did Gash, I, I, you know, I, I got to a very commercial place in the world I was working and I was their lead artist. It was a very difficult mantle to wear. You know, I wasn't comfortable with it and I wasn't any good at it. I'd never trained in it. It just wasn't natural to me. I was a painter who'd gone into that world... And I, I, I made up, you know, I got taught how to do fabric printing in one evening with Walter Hoffman and Greeny in a hotel room in the Southern Cross Hotel in Melbourne. And they were so drunk they were lying on the fucking floor. How did this happen? How did that little <laughs> circumstance happen? Well, Walter loved Alan. He was very fond of him. Yeah. Um, Walter was a god in that world um, and his family were absolute gods that was like olympus um they pretty much supplied all of that southern californian fabric to all of the people that created that dream you know they were very important walter saw in alan you know a very strong young man who was going to have a a dig you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) and he liked him so he came out one time and 
we, I used to, um, I, I just started at this point and so I was trained in the Vic College of the Arts in um, printmaking and painting. That was my background. I'd never done a day of graphic art in my life, ever. But my father had and I'd worked with him when I was a kid. So off the books there was a very um, good grounding in, in lettering and, and design and form and my mother was a very good um, seamstress. So from a very young age I designed all my own clothes and then we'd go and get patterns and adjust them and and I'd pick all the fabric and we'd, you Have know. fun. Yeah. And that was from like quite young um, because I never liked what was commercially available and I always had this fantasy of what I thought I should be wearing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and mum indulged it, you know, and so yeah. we had great fun together. It was a lovely thing we could do as, yeah. as father and, I mean, mother and son. Um, so when I got into Quicksilver, all the pattern tables and everything, all of that was second nature. And so um, Walter had come out because what we were starting to do, which was quite groundbreaking and fairly significant, I think, in the weird journey that all that shit takes, we were starting to design prints to the lays on the cutting table so that they were engineered into the garments and not just cut at random and then sewn together so that you'd get a band of flowers around the leg or you up the, the side or whatever like that. Mm. So engineering prints wasn't something that was part of the surf language before that. That was something. So Walter came out to help us with that. Along a bunch of other things, but from, in my world, that was the part where we. So he taught me all about repeats and how fabric printing works and everything that afternoon or late afternoon and evening in the hotel room in the Southern Cross. Mm -hmm. And him and Alan, they were hard drinking men. You know, I didn't drink. You know, I'd come off a fucking hippie commune. I was on another wavelength altogether and but it was it hard for you to sit in that environment to say oh no nah, she's like you know I, I don't drink anymore either and sometimes it's like I, I find it hard to you know no I used to enjoy it because it used to freak them out yeah okay cool <laughs> <laughs> and so it was fun yeah and, and and they were cool look honestly you know like it was all good no one Oh, yeah, every now and then someone would say something fucking stupid. But for the large part, we had fun with it. And um, I never felt left out and I don't think they ever felt that I should be anything else, you know. It was cool. But they drunk. And so all of that information that you'd go and do at RMIT for several years, I got given in an afternoon and it was enough the, uh, for whatever reason, you know. I mean, obviously things had to be practised and worked out and constantly nuanced, but fundamentally he did teach me in that afternoon mm. everything that led to Quicksilver's artwork in terms of its application, practically speaking. Um, and we started out doing... 
blueprints that were based on that Hawaiian language and that that aloha kind of language. Um, but we always brought our own nuance to it because I'd come from art school mm-hmm. and I, I think my, my, um, just the paradigms I worked with were all grounded in that. And so it was always conversations around the, the way you do it and how it feels when you look at it and everything. And Alan was very... Um, he, he was great to work with. We, we we often disagreed, you know, sometimes really fucking disagreed. But his practical sense of process was invaluable. And I think the fact that I came from a different world always kept us apart because this is how smart he was. It, it, the art room and where I worked, he never let, anyone else's anything ever get in there. So I never saw what Rip Curl did or Billabong did or anything like that while I was doing what I was doing. I might have, you know, you see it in the world or you see it eventually at a trade show or something, but during the process, never. And I think that's how come we were able to do things that completely derailed an existing paradigm and brought in alternative ways of doing things and so in that how, re- how, what a nice sensibility he must have had to allow you that space yeah, yeah. it's like not a lot of people understand that no and at the time i was always fighting with him so i couldn't see that but i'm saying that <laughs> clearly now <laughs> right yeah. you know with the with the benefit of time but i think we both got to know who we really were over time much better um but I always enjoyed working with John and Alan. Um, John always had innate taste. He, he just had innate taste and it became educated and informed and, and, and very um, commercially savvy and everything with time, but it was innate. And he surfed like that. If you ever see old footage of John surfing, he's incredibly elegant. I he gave me some footage, ah. and uh, there's some footage of you on there as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, I took a little video of it and sent it to Sham not that long oh, ago. Oh, classic! Yeah. Oh, unreal! Yeah. Yeah. Well, John was a beautiful surfer, and um, you know we'd surfed together since we were kids, obviously, and so, and I really loved surfing with him long before Quicksilver was ever a thought in anyone's mind and because um, he was a gentleman. He, he, he was competitive, he was skillful, he, he had it all going on but he always took his turn and he was a pleasure to surf with. There was no weirdness there whatsoever. Um, Alan was quite different to that. <laughs> <laughs> And there's stories there that won't go down on record. Yeah. But but um, I knew Alan before Quicksilver too and we'd had our moments. Um, but <clears throat> it, was, um, it was a very brave time. Alan would send out, when we did Echo Beach especially, which was a, the most dramatic shift in paradigms, which was all the polka dots and all the ge- geometric stuff, 
he'd send out shipments to people and they'd send it back saying, please send us your flowers, we can't sell this. And he'd just send back a, a fax back then and just said, get fucked. You get nothing. You're done. You don't do that nowadays. None of those companies think like that anymore. And so it was a wonder, again, it was a set of circumstances, you know, and um, we did because we could. And as it got more serious and things became more consequential and more lives were involved and more things were at stake, a lot of those freedoms, they gradually went. And um, negotiating all of those shifts uh, was difficult for everyone involved because they'd never been into these places before. And were you uh, were you there when Jeff Hackman? Hmm. I, I wasn't there at the table. Do you, is that what you yeah. mean? When he no, I wasn't at the table when yeah. that happened, but I was certainly there. Yes, yeah. And I, I knew Jeff. I mean, I, I, we've been lifelong friends, and. Um, I was just talking to Morris about Jeff the other day, like what he's doing now, he's well into his 70s and the waves he's riding and the journey he's had and where he, he, you couldn't do a better job of being that age, that guy. <laughs> he's just extraordinary. Still charging. Oh, yeah. And um, he's had to deal with a lot of things along the way and he's... Um, people whose lives have flowed a lot easier and have been a lot more affluent and everything, they're not out there with him now. You know what I'm... Mm. So, again, you talk about a certain sort of person. A lot of those things um, I've always felt, as you bear witness to the journey, that... I mean, we've talked about Torquay, you know, I could talk equally to you about the art world or yoga or the martial arts world. In every aspect of the worlds that I've engaged with and tried to contribute something to creatively, um, there's always been a, an equally remarkable mix of people <laughs> coming into play. And I think I've been very lucky because... Um, I've had extraordinary mentors and friends and teachers all mixed into one. And, you know, I don't know if I bring particularly much to it myself, but I've had the benefit of extraordinary inspiration and guidance at times when I've most needed it, starting with my father and my mother. And, you know, not everyone can say that. Sometimes that isn't true for people. So I was very fortunate. You know, life is very varied and, you know, a lot of time along the journey I've worked, say, just as an artist and I haven't worked in the industry and, you know, there have been tough times materially and and tough on my family, tough on, on the things you need to get through day-to-day um, -day life. Um but in all of those variants and, and all of those fluctuations and, you know, even the surf industry and everything we're talking about, you know, didn't always pay well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it wasn't always, wasn't always a land of plenty. Mm. But um, the inspiration of really good people and the association and the... 
the the, the opportunity to grow up with people like Terry Wall as mentors, you know, I mean, as, as, as intelligent and as brave a surfer as you'd ever want to meet, but so much more, <laughs> mm. you know? Yeah. And the, the richness of all of those rivers and streams of thought and influence, um, <clears throat> surfing has become... I mean, I, I look at the language that comes out of the, the the corporate bodies now and the WSL and it's it's reached a level of banality that I, I'm just gobsmacked that that something... I think it's... I thought about it as Sham said something the other day. It was actually pretty good because um, I lamented enormously, you know, and I, I, I listened to the way they talk about surfing and... There's something fascinating right now as we sit here, you know, the the Rip Curl contest um, and its 50-year moment. They're all significant things, you know. It's not it's not to be belittled or anything. It's, it's, it is. But the type of language that's employed, the only thing that has drawn public interest to the event is when they start talking about the sea. <laughs> then people are listening and then you see them responding to that and all of the press feeds and everything that are going out and you look at what's coming out of the mouth of various parts of the media and they're all talking about this 50-year, <laughs> right? Mm. And Kelly's talking about it when he, and, and WSL and Kelly and blah, blah, blah. <coughs> it's all a, it's a broad church but a small family. Um. The language fascinates me right in the moment we're sitting here because the one thing that pierced the public mind and broke through all that barrage of information and actually caught people's imagination was talk about the ocean. That I'm very, I feel good about. Mm. <laughs> I'm not so sure I feel good about the way it plays out. But... I am really encouraged by the fact that in the end, while we watch a, an industry go through something like the car industry in Detroit and all of these other things and, you know, the WSL for, for whatever value it may or may not have, um, it certainly doesn't know how to talk about surfing. It, it's, its language is... I mean, banal, I'm being... No, I feel like they're trying to make it a mainstream sport, so they're talking to people who don't know anything about it and any time they talk about it is sort of a feel. Yes, but the language they've reached for and the way they're describing it constantly repeats itself. Oh, you think the subliminally there's something going on? No, I just think that they've reached <laughs> the limit of their own ability to to have a discourse and and, and what they repeat the words they're using are not part of the normal public landscape. Mm. They're unique to the competitive world that they're in. They don't translate and they're meaningless to people and they just keep getting repeated over and over and over again. So you've got to have something like an 11 times world champion where that would mean something to anybody. <laughs> they got Kelly to speak about bells. Mm. And... That's because he's an 11 times world champion. 
um, their ability to speak about the ocean and why people surf and what it is that makes it special, it doesn't exist. It's like what your old man said, it's a yeah. corporate thing. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm always saying to Sean jokingly, you know, the ocean couldn't care less who you think you are or what you think you're doing. Mm-mm. So you'd be better to care about what the ocean wants and you'd probably get somewhere. But if you're full of that other thing, um, you know, you, 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 your um, potential for real enjoyment and connection is very narrow. And you've lost the broadness of the ocean itself. And I, I, I think um, at this stage it's really important to bear witness to some of the primary truths, you know, the... Yes, you can build a wave pool. Yes, it's an extraordinary technological achievement and it's a mesmeric thing to watch. There's something very compelling and and wonderful about it. Um, But it's the unpredictability of the ocean that's capturing the imagination of the public right now. It's not the predictability of a wave pool. No, the unpredictability of a 15-foot swell. That's all of and, – and all of their – employing their 50-year storm language and all of this stuff that they're pulling from every which way um, all points to something you can't control that men and women have to bear witness to and engage with but they're not um, – you know, there's a type of um, – vulnerability in that that's been true since humans began. It touches the very core of the way we're hot-wired. Hot Is it go back to the, the cathedral of men killing each other in ancient Greece? I think it, it, it's even further back. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I really do. Yeah. I think it touches something. I've, I've, I've been very... Um, in the last couple of decades, I've, I've, I've been very inspired by just Paleolithic and Neolithic art and the cave art. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time, that's what a lot of the work downstairs I showed you has has you know, inspired by, I spend a lot of time here quietly and, and fairly alone um, experiencing place and experiencing the environment that, that I live in um, with as little of a construct as I can possibly manage <laughs> so that I just see it hopefully in a more timeless way and touch something more timeless. And I think, pardon me, when a man stands up, a woman stands up on a wave, there's something so primary in the human condition in that moment 
And certainly the very first craft that we ever had would have had an equal combination of standing and sitting because you need to stand to see. So on the logs and things that people poke their way down the waterways where they would have been standing as much as they would have been sitting because there's a hunting component and there's also a safety component. So it's right back in our primary DNA. And um, that creative expression um, that happens in, in, in surfing when what I'm getting at is when the elements get wild, all of that DNA wakes up in people, and and they 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 all 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 of the uh, all of the wiring starts to fire, and they're interested. And I think it's an interest that comes through the unconscious into the conscious. And I think some of what's so compelling about it is it's very mysterious, and and th- these things are wonderful. Um, but they're not the subject of of a competitive um, discussion, even though the competitive thing's perfectly natural too. But um, you know, I love that you were just saying how you like to come out and just sit out here. This is beautiful, and we bear witness to what's unraveling before you with the beauty of nature or the, 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 the violence of nature or whatever All it may be yeah. in that moment. Um, and then we talked about, I said something about ancient Greece and you said further back and I instantly thought, well, in this area, in the land that we are on now, yes, could go back 200,000 years. Absolutely you could. That we are even aware of and further, maybe, yeah. I mean. Yeah. And, and in this area uniquely layered involvement over such a long period of time with some evidence of cultivation and farming of eels and and, and, um, engagement with the landscape that was denied the Aboriginal people until very recent times in the big scheme of things. But... There's evidence here of all sorts of involvement. You know, I, I came here because of Dean Maher, the Dean Maher's Lady Julie Percy Island out there. Yeah, it's you should look this up. It's um, vertical, came straight up out of the sea. According to many scientists, it's the only one of them on the east coast of the country. They just came straight up like that. But it it's cliffs are higher than gibbos. Just out here. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really extraordinary. But and on every level. Um when we were kids you could you're allowed on it. You can get up on the south um west corner. It's fallen in. How far off is it? Seven to ten Ks. Oh, it's a ways out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a distance out. Yeah. Huge landmass. Wow. Shaped like a big triangle, isosceles triangle. And, um, but its significance for the Aboriginal people is, is very singular in that the people of this region, many, from what I can gather, the bodies that they've found buried, their heads all point towards it. 
That's certainly true in the cases of people I've spoken to whose families made those discoveries on the land in which their families were living. So I've dug into it a bit and it does seem... And there's a cave near the crags where some people say they took the bodies and put them in the cave, but from what I can gather, the spirit left the body and went to the cave and then went from the cave out to Dean Ma, where the afterlife took place. And the earliest record of it's in a book by a man named James Dawson. And he says the spirit then went up into the sky. But, and I've got no proof of this, but some of my instincts are just telling me that may be a little christian tidying up of something with the sky part Mm -hmm. i'm not so sure Mm. but i'm definitely sure they went the spirit went out there so you know i'm old now and and um i'm i'm looking at the latter part of my journey and so every day i can go down and contemplate these things with dean maher out there and I paddle down on my paddleboard down here. I, I call this is the Ambuck Lake, but I call it the Sticks. You know, it's the River Cherryan road across to take them across. And so I've got a little, a little Just practice runs. Yeah, a little yeah. practice run. <laughs> and no, it's a very nice thing to do when when this is the bearing witness part too. You know, like you have to bear witness to things as they actually are. And these are universal realities for everybody. And as you move into them, if you look them right in the eye, they're profoundly inspiring and and enrich your, your journey. Everything has an energy. Yeah. If you look. Yeah, so this was a special spot just down the mouth of the river here. There's a spot to the right that you kind of go up over a, a reasonably high mound and you go into a small um, cup-shaped amphitheatre, stone kind of configuration with vegetation and that that's where the very last corroboree was held in this region. This is ancient. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not uh, um, do you know the word I'm searching for there? Sacred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a sacredness to it. Yeah. And it was a female area. They used to come here for herbs and medicines and things. Um, and around this edge was their walking track. Um, and they would cross the river back inland. They, they're very active over here. There's lots of evidence of a very rich Aboriginal culture here. Um, but, yes, for me personally, Brimley was that too, you know. It, it's got a wonderful history. This is so much like Brimley before today. There's nine houses here. There was 97 there. It's by a river mouth into the sea um i would have lived at brimley till i died if all of the development didn't take place (laughs) i was i was perfectly happy with what the place itself had to offer i loved it but down here i wanted my children to know what that feels like 
in a way that we were able to taste when we were young before people have had too much to do with it. And it's still present here, you know, it's not perfect, but it's certainly palpable. <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny, I looked at, um, I was at my aunt and uncle's the other day at Mount Martha and uh, there was an old picture of the, the little creek at Mount Martha that runs into yep. the ocean. It probably, I think it was taken in 1930s. Yeah. And it was just a little bridge and it was just so beautiful, The um, just the natural meandering of how the creek ran into the beach, into the ocean mm. and the way the roots were sticking out. Mm. And there was a, it was like there's nothing like that around anymore. No. Well, not much. No, well, it's funny. Bo Morris, I mean, I'm talking a lot about my childhood, which I didn't plan to do, but Bo Morris was special because uh, it was owned by um, – or at least a lot of it was owned by, um, I think it was Clark Rubber. Anyway, it was one of those weird, there was a rubber factory there. Clark Rubber been around that for... Yeah, yeah, yeah they're yeah. old. Oh. I think it was them. You have to look back. But anyway, a lot of it was owned and it was bush still. And the urban development, just like Torquay, just like Brimley, just like everything that we've been talking about. When I was a child, I witnessed the whole thing happen in Bomoris. So Bomoris was this sanctuary where there was a huge... People used to get lost. They used to send in search parties to find them and all that. I remember all that when I was a kid. Fair income lost. <laughs> but what was going on around it, Mentone, um, all of the... Uh, well, Cheltenham was all market gardens and stuff, but... Um, as soon as you went across from Blackrock on up into Hampton and all that, that was intensely urban. But Bomoris was a, a region apart and all of what you're describing I, I think is incredibly beautiful. That natural landscape, the way the little waterways and rivulets and, and, and everything and the tea tree and all of it made the coast so beautiful and so um, Arcadian. It, it was... Um, well, there's an element of mystic, mystery or... Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know... Yeah, I mean, there, there could have been dyads and everything living in the bush. It was like that. And it drew creative people, which is my real point, I guess, um, in the Melbourne landscape at that time. Many, many creative people lived down there because of, of that. And it was very close to Melbourne and the train went to Sandringham and everything was easy and people could commute to the respective work and jobs and galleries and different things that they, they, they were involved with but, but live, live apart with a small effort. And uh, so it was a very special place. And it's funny, you know, I reckon that's why Bomoris became so expensive because when they did start to sell all that, it was exactly like the coast and it was like the first example I saw of that rural <laughs> urban. Um, and, and so I guess, yeah, for my kids I wanted them to know during their formative years the, the freedom that they can have here. You know, they go into the sand dunes with their sleeping bags and sleep overnight and do all the things we used to do. Mm. 
And people surf like that here, you know, there's huts and little things and everything. It's a world that's long gone up there. And um, it's not perfect, I think. It's a it's such a shame this land is so stripped and the way the Aborigines were treated here is, um, you know, as brutal as it ever got anywhere in this country. Um, there's some pretty shocking... Uh, evidence of that even now um, but there's some very um, I, th I think as we go forward you know the the Torquay the surf coast area if you're going to live on this coast you know that area is um, if you can accept it for what it is it's still great you know it's better than a lot of the world but if you lived so many years there for what it was you can't and um, it saddens me, really. I've still got my family up there. I've still got, um, and, you know, the property at Bells, you know, that, that was a sanctuary too, you know, still is. But what's around, it's really quite full on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So I found myself living in sanctuaries, you know. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's enough on all that, I think, um I mean, the only thing that comes to me while we're talking is there's so many areas, there's so much, um, you know, the, there's a lifetime of practising yoga. I started that in 1966. You know, that's a whole conversation in itself. Still um, practise daily? Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, obviously you, you respond, yoga's like surfing, you're not, when you're young, you're meant to do it quite rigidly in the sense that you apply the same practice regularly day in, day out. But that's to train something and to condition something and to break something. <laughs> but once that happens, it should be much more responsive and it should be a lot more like surfing where you assess your, you know, they call, what do they call the, the kshetra, you, you, you assess the field, your body each day and respond according to that, not what you think, you know? Yeah. I had a teacher say to me once, um, the brain's a whore. You've got to listen to the body. Yeah, well, you train the brain to be <laughs> chaste, but you do listen to the body. <laughs> <laughs> I just loved that when he said it. I was like, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. No, the brain, I mean, you know, the mind needs work and um, I, I find, I mean, I, one, of, one of my mentors um, is from South India and um, he, 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 he comes from a very different tradition that, that hasn't played much part in the formation of, of the global phenomenon called yoga now. It's still very ancient. And it's female, actually. The lineage is female, which is quite unique in yoga. Yoga is predominantly male, <clears throat> but this this lineage isn't. And um, he, he, being female, it's very responsive and intuitive, and he, he very much um, proposes that that you work in a responsive way with with the practice and. Um, when you've done it for a very long time, you know, I've done it for over 55 years now. You know, it's quite a long time. 
um, it affects the way I look at the creative process. It affects the way I live my day. It mightn't always be the music that's playing most loudly in the foreground, but it's never gone from the background. It shifts according to the day and the time of day and the circumstance. But I, I, I think everybody needs to have some time where they can take time apart and that's what the work down there is about. It's what the idea of bearing witness underpins, that you do need time to bear witness because the type of joy that comes from that does take time. And in a modern creative world, you know, I'm still doing GASH, for example, and I work with all of the requirements on the media platforms and that with a little thing like that. And for years I was seriously working with Quick on a massive scale with those issues. Um, what I see for people is it's very hard for them to stop long enough to actually have any pleasure. They get a type of excitement, but it's not pleasure. It's not... Mm, I understand what you're saying. You know what I'm, yeah, I'm trying yeah, to say? It's, There's it's, a type of joy that yeah. comes when... It's an endorphin of, rush. Yeah. It's not a fulfilled... Yeah, it's all front Sustained, brain. yeah. And, and so creatively speaking, at this point in time... Yeah, I enjoy. I think there's a place for Gash. I'm I'm really enjoying what we're doing. We're having a great time, and we're commenting on things um, that I, I I think warrant comment. But it is satirical, and it's meant to be. It always was meant to be. It's got a place. It's it's um, it's a socially oriented art expression, and and it deals with with those sort of issues, but there's a part of me that really wants to deal with m much more primary issues as well. The issues of being and what it means to be a human being beyond time and to find um, ways of talking about things that really matter without being pretentious or pompous or, or, or arrogant. You know, it's a very difficult thing to do it and be humble and to mm -hmm. be... But if you live in the presence of something much bigger than you and you take time um, uh, to contemplate nature in, in a traditional sense, you really do benefit. Um, have sorry to cut you off. Have you ever? Um, do you know Rudolf Steiner? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very much. It's a big part of his. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it's a lovely point to touch because um, a you know my kids have, at least in part, some of them have definitely had Steiner educations, and um, I think that he. He wove a lot of those elements together. You know, people forget when he lived. I mean, he lived quite a long time ago now. And he was really at the birth of modernity. Um, the real shift into modernity, uh, he was not at the very front of it because it happened a couple of decades before him, but it was bloody close. And... He really took so much 
from the past and saw it through new eyes and gave it new life and, and new meaning. The body of work that he left behind. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And, and I, I, I think that's why it has a place today. I mean, a lot of the Steiner world is layered with post-hippie 70s thinking, <laughs> but Steiner's own writing and that's not like that at all. And it's so perennial that it can speak through layers like that and still resonate. Mm. Uh, I think it appeals to people who, who came through that time because so many of the values are similar, but, but he's tougher. He's tough. He's mm. rigorous. But steeped in reality. Mm, that's what I mean. He's yeah. German, mate. You know, <laughs> you know, people forget, like, he's a German, you know. They don't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They're, they're heavyweights. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> they, they've got a tough mind, you know, and, and they're, they're, um, they take for granted rigour and discipline. That's just like not even spoken about it, so taken for granted. But, no, I love, I love what... what um, and I, th I think there's, um, there's a real place for looking at the things that matter to us. I mean, we share the ocean, we share the sky, we share the planet. Um, you know, the, the, the very essence of um, what matters I guess just getting a bit deep and I'm not quite sure I want to go there, but one thing I'm going to try and say is nowadays there's a lot, and especially nowadays, we've slipped backwards quite considerably in recent years. <laughs> there's a very polarised discourse. There's women against men and men against women. There's Muslims against Christians. There's, there's West against East. And there's every country known to man arguing with every other country and imposing on whatever one of these enemies we've chosen a whole range of negative values that, that both sides share equally. And I think there's a real need to own the collective human condition and stop being, I mean, you know, you have an alternative school of surfing and you have a competitive school of surfing that's corporately based. All these polarisations, there's great surfers who love surfing in all camps, you know what I'm saying? Mm. There's great people who love life in all camps. There's great people who think profoundly and you could learn from in every camp. All of, all of these different polarisations that we create. Um, well, there doesn't have to be a right and a wrong. No, exactly. It, it, it's a commonly shared human condition and if we approach that honestly and we approach it creatively, and to some degree con contemplatively because we are in a time where we're so front brain and we're moving so fast. Uh, it's very hard for people to even see large ideas anymore because they've um, created a, a world where they're responding to immediate and small things very quickly, constantly. And it's a type of addiction. 
I, th I, I don't know all the neurological terms, but I know it's like shooting yourself up with a short-term fix the whole time in terms of your adrenaline and everything, mm. it, it, the way it works. Yeah. And it's a genuine problem to perception. We're not going to be able to fix big issues if we can't see big things. And if we can't think, we were talking about Torquay, I mean, on one level I don't blame people and I don't want to, but the people are conditioned by the world they've grown up in. But it's very hard for the people that are in responsible positions in these councils and that to have long-term vision because everything that's coming across their desk is short-term, fast, and they've got to respond quickly and the communication systems they're using um, demand that. If they're communicating with the world and everything, they've got to service that on a, a rapid basis so they can't go deep into anything. I thought newspapers used to be a problem when they tried to go deep, but nowadays they, <laughs> they look like, you know, big thick books by comparison. And it's very hard and I think there's a real need, uh, a creative need in all of us to respond to our existence more fully and more deeply and more wholly and... Um, we crave that, we go on holiday looking for it, we go surfing looking for it, we, we look at our arts and everything else. We, we, it's not like we look in the wrong places, it's just that there's very little... You know yourself, you're a surfer. Yes, you're out there to ride waves, but the whole experience is what you take home. In fact, the memory of the ridden wave isn't the first thing that usually comes to mind if you think about a day surfing. I know. It's made up of many, you know, checking, talking, yeah. interacting with friends. Looking out to sea. Yeah, looking out to sea. And that's where the journal came from. I, I realised Terry Wall actually said this to me one day. This is where this, this how these things work. You know, Terry's very smart. Very highly intelligent man and very, very poetic and, and not at all the competitive sportsman that he first appears. He is that too, but he's, there's much more. And he said, he said to me one day, Simon, have you ever thought about how many hours you've spent looking out to sea? <laughs> and it was one of those gestalt moments. I'd, I realised exactly what he was getting at and... It laid a seed way back when um, for what became that journal practice, which is primarily looking out to sea, unless I'm in Europe or somewhere where there's no sea, you mm. know, then I'll look at that. But whatever, I'm living my normal life, it's nearly 99% of the pictures in there are looking out to sea. Um, that adds up when you've done 4,000-plus paintings and they're all looking out to see. The collective weight of that is a nice thing. It's a very kind of obscure art form in a funny way, but it's a nice thing to give to the world. Do you think you'll ever have an ex 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 exhibition? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll include it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't quite know what that looks like. I may die before I work that out. Because it's an amazing body of work, You're like, you know, the daily practice and the, yeah. you know, it's 
Awesome. Yeah, there's something about the fact that it's all between covers and you've got to physically open them and there's a visceral component about sequence and time taken. There's so much inherent that which is behind why because I could have easily done 4,000 paintings that went in frames and went on a wall. Um, just as easy, probably a lot easier. I certainly wouldn't have had to lug all that crap around the way I did. Um, but I love the fact that, and this is Sham's point with surfing. Sham said the other day, you know, I was lamenting all of this banality and he said, you know, it might be a good thing that the better part doesn't get talked about. And I thought... Yep. There's nothing wrong with mystery and there's nothing wrong with earning something and there's nothing wrong with having to pass through a process to get to it. And almost everything in the world has had that cheapened and, and truncated and, um, you know, I was listening to uh, the ABC the other day and um, I can't remember who it was but one of the people that was speaking was very involved in the, the current um, social media landscape and, you know, whole kind of um, dynamic of communication and sharing that, that we work with nowadays. And, and he was saying that they've absolutely proved now that people's attention span won't go past 15 seconds. The most you can hold them is about 30. What? before their mind flicks to something else. And you can bring it back sequentially, but you will have to. Now, you know, we talk about yoga or or, or art. I mean, if you're going to paint, you know, many of the great paintings that you go around to Europe and all that to look at, um, the amount of hours spent making them is unimaginable nowadays and it's fascinating I just want to say this with the prehistoric art because it'll just give you a little insight into my own work from this perspective I've got a museum replica of a figurine up there which is a a lion-headed man a lion-headed man yeah lion-headed man it's the oldest provable it's not the oldest man-made artefact or anything, but it's the oldest provable figurative piece of art and it's between forty to 45,000 years old. Um, <clears throat> it's European. It was found in Germany. And they've done a lot of work on this piece. Sort of sounds Egyptian. Yes, it's shamanic. And this is my point with identity and humanity and all of this. Why I find, because I think a surfer comes close to this, our relationship with the ocean, when it's not encumbered with all of the, Mm -hmm. you know, rigmarole, it's a very pure and direct relationship and something, you know, anybody who surfs knows, if you do connect with the ocean well, something in you is transformed and greater than it was before you started. Um, That's a shamanic dynamic because you're shifting some of your identity across into something that is beyond you 
that you're taking that in and you're working with it and you're transforming that through the way you respond and any good surfer any average surfer knows that feeling on some level mm. it's the thing that draws you deep now a quality like that i believe man had that once with everything because there was no edifice <laughs> to compare it to <laughs> right yeah and and there's something in us that really needs to stay in touch with that in the face of all of this construction that we've got now we've talked about the surf industry but obviously that's a minute pee in the face of the entire edifice and and the I, primal fear yeah. that's tied in there yeah. with surfing still yeah. you know like exactly that's part of it too there absolutely and i and i think things like fear don't sit comfortably with modern no right <laughs> yeah but they're wonderful yeah and if you don't they stretch and grow yes exactly and, um, you know, in the yoga there's a tradition called Tantra where they, uh, they have a, a, an aphorism, uh, one must rise or elevate oneself by that by which one falls. So fear is something that could make you fall, it could make you shrink, it could make you hide. But if you use that the right way you'll rise and it'll bring out a freedom and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, an energy that you didn't think you were capable of, 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 of um, being a vehicle for. And so I think we're very lucky in surfing um, because we still have these experiences and even with all of the stuff that um, has layered itself and we both come from an area where that it's one of the epicenters on this planet of that layering, um, there's still available that direct experience. And I think it's available in art. You know, I find it um, in, in painting because I've, I've got a nervous need to use my hands. But um, one thing I've found... I learnt on my last trip to Europe, um, the caves, many of the caves in which these paintings are placed, you've got to walk a kilometre or more into the mountain to get to them. Hmm. It's no small thing. It's definitely not your rock overhang and all that because all that's worn away, you mm. know. There's very little evidence of that except in Portugal. But... Most of the paintings we read about and see in pictures and stuff, they're very deep inside the mountain. And the um, shamanic aspect of that's self-evident. But what I found out this trip is the acoustics of the places that they pick to paint these pictures have a certain resonance that is like as pure as the best Gothic cathedral or anything. And it also has a, um, a consciousness transforming dynamic to it, naturally speaking. So not only, you know, these people were wearing skins and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. we made such <laughs> fun when we were, you know, 
50 years ago at school and that you were taught all this stuff about how primitive these people were. This is how refined they were, <laughs> actually. Not only were the paintings um, gobsmackingly beautiful and the economy of mark-making with the, the spirit that that imbibes is just it's as good as anything that's ever been done. But they were going down these bloody tunnels in the dark with flickering, which yeah, yeah, whatever they had. Couldn't imagine yeah. what that must have been like yeah. to, just to begin with for a kilometre or more. Now, why, why do you think so? For the acoustics, or for because I think art the was combination. Forbidden? I think I think that. They were driven by whatever frames of reference they had, which we don't know. Mm. They were able to single out these, and these places were only visited, you know, that sometimes there was 10,000 years between the layers of drawing in there. Wow. Like, but you think they're in there the whole time doing this? No. Yeah, yeah. It was really rare. And... There was something so profound um, about the human consciousness that deep inside the cave and where that went with the unconscious and where identity went. And and what you don't realise is that, A, a huge amount of the figures in these caves are shamanic. They're half animal, half man. Um, There's no question that these people were that. But... Statistically, most of the work, not all of it, but most of the work you see are the animals and everything because they're so beautiful. But by sheer quantity, most of the work's abstract. And it involves entopic, entoptic patterns, you know, the sort of patterns you see when you pull your eyes shut or when you're going into yeah. transformative states. Yeah, yeah. That's what's on the walls. That's what makes up. And usually what happens is you go through that into the animals. They, they're, the, they're the transformed state. But your entry is through all this um, abstract patterning. And um, that sense that we have when we surf, the, the, the mark, we we make through the water and it's it's ephemeral nature but how right it has to be through the moment and all of that there's something in that 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 allows us to touch something that's genuinely timeless it's a truly wonderful subject mm. it's a wonderful life to live it's a wonderful gift to bring the world Surfing struggles to give anything to the world, I think. I, th- I think that's one of its shortcomings. Hmm. Um, well, it's, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a selfish yeah. act. I mean, we get so much joy from it for those who are around us that don't surf. It's not very giving to them. No, it's not. And I, and I was thinking about it um, when I was looking at all this competitive um, language and stuff because I knew Bells was coming and and all of that and I think that occurred to me that watching it all was like watching someone take heroin. 
<laughs> the person who's taken the heroin yeah. Yeah. could write a book on how amazing it is, but you're watching someone nod off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's about as compelling as watching bloody dog shit dry in the sun. And to turn that round, that's one of the big challenges I've always had with surfing. Um, and it's why I've always gone back into my art and and gone back into some of those fields with as much energy as I have because, you know, I, I knew how to surf down here in a way where I could have more fun than just about anybody and definitely rode more waves than most people will ever ride. But um, there was a lack of giving back that really was always getting under my... Um, spiritual skin, you know, I couldn't, mm. I couldn't get rid of the, the discomfort that, that brings at times, and <clears throat> as I've got older, I've thought a lot about what it is that you would like to give, and it's somewhere in the area we're talking. I do think that, um, in all that grunting and effort to rip and all that nonsense and heaving and hoeing that you see going down the point <laughs> of black nose today, mm. deep down all of those people have touched something at some point that was far better than that. And that's what drives them forward. They're just misguided. And every now and then you'll see someone out there who really gets it. He'll just be coming through or she'll be coming through and they'll have that um, direct connection and they really couldn't care whether they're ripping or not. <laughs> they're just complimenting what the wave wants them to do. And I, I think that there is something in that pure act that does go right back to the very beginnings of human consciousness and, and the way human beings respond to being alive and the unique spirit that, that a human brings to that moment that distinguishes us. And, and it is a type of bearing witness. You know, when you go back to those earliest pieces of art, they bear witness. Mm -hmm. And it's in the most wonderful way and they held it to be so special. You know, they go a kilometre inside a mountain to do it. I love that. And I wish... Um, well, it's like you were saying that you feel most comfortable in a room alone with yeah. some paints and I'm uh, guessing that you're tapping into the same thing, that that's where they probably could find that same solitude. Yeah. And if I was brutally honest, I've only surfed with other people for safety reasons. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. I'm joking. <laughs> but I do, <laughs> I do like surfing with people of like mind where we can actually experience the whole thing together um, in a way where we've shared it and we've helped elevate each other, uh, not where I've had to... Compete. Well, not where I've had to, out, uh, you know, strategically out-manipulate people to get what I need. Yeah. Um, it's a very limited resource, unfortunately, surfing, and it, it, it does raise a lot of ethical problems, I reckon. Um, yeah, there's a whole... Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, but what I want to just wanted to cap on is like just from I've no what are the things that you have tackled well, you know tackling and keep fronting up to and challenging yourself daily 
are lifelong commitments, which is just, you know, I, I, I think it's amazing. You've got the, I know you've got your martial arts aspect mm. coupled with yoga, surfing, art, family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's all a journey and they all go, you know, and there's nothing too fleeting in any of it. So whatever you are grounding yourself in, I'd say it seems to be, it's pretty honourable anyway. Well, that's a thank you. I appreciate that. It's it's a hard journey. I think sometimes um, you're definitely uh, these things that you you reach for very simple phrases, but that the, the issues are much more complex. That's why I hesitate. I was going to say you, you end up apart to some degree. Well, that's true. But hopefully what you're doing actually enriches the fabric of the whole really nicely in the end <laughs> and the circle's complete. But because of the practices that you choose, you, you will by definition spend a lot of time alone <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and apart like a writer would. Or mm. I think it's an important part of growth is, yeah. you know, been alone and growing with your own, wrestling with your own things and then coming back and putting it into society and seeing how it's reflected back at you a bit. And yeah, no, fully. I yeah. think the last bit actually really does matter. Um, and again, I, po- I point to the modern landscape and I talk a lot to the younger people because I want them to feel good about the deeper things that really drive us as human beings. But the world they're in and the technology that they're using and the way it's shaping their consciousness, some of those things have become a lot more difficult to access. And so helping bring processes and methods and ways of looking at things that can um, remedy that I think is a very important contribution at this point in time. And um, as I age even more... Um, there's probably a part of me that can't stop poking. I'll always do stuff like <laughs> Gash because I've got that need just to poke. Um, and I'd do it with, uh, what's the word? I mean, underneath it all, I only do it because I care a lot about it. Right? You know, well, it looks like you have fun with it too. Well, exactly. And, 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 when, when you struggle with some things that you care a lot about, the best way to cope with them is to in, have some sense of humour there. I think it gives you the key to, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Otherwise totally. it matters too much and you get constipated with it all <laughs> bitter and everything. You've got to have some fun yeah. and, and, and you've got to have fun at yourself. I mean, one of the things I've always enjoyed when the industry was young or you know, with Gash when we've done it or, or whatever, sometimes even with my art, you know, that I've hung in galleries and that, you know, I think there's got to be a self-deprecating dimension to what you do. And I think that's actually really good fun because it's a great joy to letting go of the things that you're overly precious about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, at some point you're going to die and get rid of all of that anyway and if you can get rid of it while you're alive, you, it's a lot better on the people around you as a rule. Um, yeah, and I don't know, there's a lot more we could touch on but... Yeah, <laughs> totally. 
I don't know what, what, no, no, what no, more you want from no, this. No, Simon, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Like I just want to explain that we are now sitting in the dark yeah. overlooking, you can see the slight reflection of the, the is it a river or lake? Yep. And uh, that was an epic sunset that went down over yeah. it and you get to experience that daily. Yes. It's beautiful. That's um, absolutely right. Thank you so much for your time. No, no worries. It was fun. I, I, it's always difficult, you know. There's, um, you know, one. What did Blake say? One thought fills an immensity. You know, every thought you have fills in an eternity and and an infinity. And everything that you think has so many implications. <laughs> yeah. And and you live your life trying to do your best with it, but you always come up short. You know, yeah, well, you can't help but and. I, I, I'm very um, – it's not often I'll speak stream of consciousness like this with yeah. people because um, it hasn't always gone well when I've done that <laughs> in the past. <laughs> yeah, I've learnt, learnt to be careful. But Sham spoke very highly of you and um, I trust Sham's judgment and now I know he's right. Um well, I just and Raf too. Raf reads you. Oh, the the podcast, the yeah. Po- yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, Raf's a very discriminating. I'm lucky. I've 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 produced very creative children. You certainly have. And they've all walked their walk true, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, you know? no, it does. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say I'm proud of that. I'm proud to be witness to that. I don't want to try and claim I own any of that because that's them. But it is a great blessing. You know, I look at I look at Sham and how he's never put his hand out to anybody. You know that he's grown up in, you know, with what I've done in the industry and that he could have really milked those connections. Um, it was right there and he's not as Sham's smart too, you know, he's a good operator. But he's done it all himself and he's done it all as true as he can and... Oh, he really cares. Yeah, he really cares. Yeah. And when I see those things handed on, it makes the latter part of your life worthwhile. Mm-hmm. When I see them lost, it causes a lot of pain and, and worry, you know, because you, you know that those things are necessary for the better part to survive. And I think we do hand a lot of it down through our children. Raf's done the same with his art and everything, you know, and and Kavala, my, my daughter, and, you know, now my youngest kids. And, and But I think we've got to hand it down beyond our families yeah, I would, and not that I have a family, but I understand with trying to treat everyone a bit more on yeah. equals and pass yeah. on, yeah, whatever it is, like compassion or you know, because we're all just going through it. Yeah, and it, it, it is. Um, that was what I was trying to allude to before. You know, when we polarize and we we we, we create. We create opposites. 
we project a whole lot of problems that from that point on will never get solved because they all came from inside us. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But when we can share them... Then we can work together with them and, and, the, and you do need to work together on some of the tougher stuff because it's not nice facing some of that too alone, you know. You, oh, no. You need to yeah. know some of those realities are shared and, you know, I, I, I look at all of the problems we're facing now, you know, with um, just say even just simple things like the Bass Strait stuff we're looking at mm-hmm. right at the moment. What people don't realise is that the people that are doing that stuff, A, they're just as intelligent as you are, B, they've probably got a lot more get up and go in them than you have, but C, they're profoundly and dangerously misguided, but D, deep down they're just like you. They want to be happy and they want to be um, connected to their life in a way that works for them. But you're not going to fix the problem by going, they're fucked. <laughs> no, no, no. Fire with fire is never. No, it doesn't, doesn't work. A little bit of satire can be fun if you're happy to aim it back at yourself at the same time so that you can lighten a very difficult subject and then start to free up the, the, the lines of conversation. But um, I think any time you separate, it's you and me and yeah. th- then we're in trouble. Yeah, we are. And I think we're going into a time right now where that's hitting a certain... I, I actually thought the worst of that had passed and we'd, we'd developed a collective understanding the beginning of all of the political correct movement and all of that I think was well-intentioned, actually, f- tragically enough at this point. But I think it was a genuine effort, at least in part, to respect people and show that your language reflects that. But now it's a veneer for some of the worst um, raping and pillaging on this planet. <laughs> Yeah, and they've learnt to hide behind. You know, there's what what happened to the word refugee? Boat people, illegal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like a word that actually immediately leads to compassion got totally removed from the discourse. This was in this country. We started it. We were the first. Um, even Trump acknowledged that we were better at it than him in the beginning, which nearly knocked me off my chair when I heard that. But the, the dehumanisation. Yeah. And just that, that kind of, um, you know, changing the language so you uh, can treat people that uh, in ways that are not human. And you end up with a Manus Island and that whole program. This is this country. That's because you're an illegal alien. Yeah. You're not a human. What? <laughs> You know, and you've yeah. come out of God knows what and you've gone through God knows what to get there. Clearly you're not on the make and on the take. <laughs> Clearly you're running for your life, you know. And, and, and all of this, um, we can't fix it 
if we if we're just critical of the problem, we've got to realize as humans we all share these problems and we manifest those sort of behaviors even if it's just in our own immediate family or something but we're all guilty of the same stuff and we're all capable of the same stuff and in various degrees we're all we all know that mm-hmm. and if we work together we can fix it and surfing you know has a lot to offer the experience does awaken you to a lot of things that are very useful in the in the big picture and i'd love to see the next stage of things um work like what you are doing work that you know maybe the big companies can't get to that stuff anymore i don't think they can actually i think their problems are too great and that takes up all their energy and that's the end of it but I would love to see surfing as a as a expression of the human spirit give a lot more back and people to speak intelligently and with conviction and compassion from what they've learned out there in the Just water forever. Just giving, giving, giving. Yeah, it's giving us. And um, you know, that's probably the. The biggest, you know, as I leave the, the that 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 kind of stage, you know, as that walk off that stage, that I'd love to see younger people coming in who have the vision and and the inspiration to to go there instead, mm. <laughs> and 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 I think it would be a lovely. Um, and I do see some of the young, you know, the the. I, I was lucky in the sense that I worked all around the world and there's no shortage of wonderful people who really see beautifully, clearly and wonderfully. Um, they're just not the power brokers. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that's enough. Well, thank you so much. Um, and thanks, John. Thanks for giving me the artwork of Gash that got me through school. <laughs> oh, don't worry. Yeah, there's a bit more coming yet. Oh, I've awesome. got some very funny things coming down the line. Well, there you have it. There was my chat with Simon Buttonshaw. I hope you enjoyed the chat because I certainly uh, it was a hell of an experience being down that part of the world and also um, talking with Simon and. Uh, yeah, it was just it was a good time. Um, you know, before and after, he showed me down to his art studio, and and it's just it's, some, it's breathtaking. It's um, yeah, I, I won't go on too much more, but it was it was something. It was really something. And uh, the next day, I went for a surf, and then on the way back with my friend, good friend Chris McDonald, uh, he took me to see Dean Maher. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can see something that's beautiful and just go, oh, and you think that's, oh, it's fucking, that's really beautiful. Um, but when we pulled up to see Dean Ma, it's got a weight to it. It fucking smacked me in the chest. It's like there is a power that you can feel a force. It's uh, really like I was a bit, you know, I was shocked by the, just the, 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 the enormity and the vibe that goes with um I don't know what you call it, rock, pillar, platform, island. Um, but it's it's got this, and I'm sure it's got many moods, but the day that we were there it was, you know, it had a mood and it was ominous and it was, um, 
yeah, I, I you could I could feel it. So you know, if you haven't seen it or you don't know anything about it, it's it's obviously a um, you know, it's a sacred um, a sacred mass and area. Anyway, um, thanks so much for listening. Thanks again, and uh, yeah, catch you later. <laughs>